Welcome to Sake Deep Dive. This is the Sake Podcast for the Beyond Beginner. I am your host, Jim Ryan, Sake author, translator, and uh, all-around man about town. Uh, joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Andrew Russell. How are you doing, Andy? Good, Jim. It's uh, spring here in Japan, so the, the cherry blossoms are basically... You know they're they're falling. They're they're still hanging in there, but they're they're uh, they've only got maybe a day or two left. But it's beautiful weather at the moment. I have to say. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it feels like it's been a surprisingly long cherry blossom season this year. It it's been going on for a couple three weeks now. But uh, yes, it has yeah, been quite lovely. It's cold in the morning. It's it's chilly tonight actually. But the, these are the days that you long for. When the brutal summer heat, which is you just, <laughs> just it's just around the corner, just around the corner, yeah, it's going to be a, a long hot summer. I get the feeling, but um, right. So it is, of course, the spring and, and a good time to drink some sake. And of course, the sake that that people drink mostly in spring is uh, is not what we are talking about today, right, Andy? What are we talking about today? Yeah, this really is so typical of us. This is the worst <laughs> timing ever. So our our spring episode, the one word that you think of with spring and sake is nama. We're going to talk about the uh, polar opposite, which is pasteurized sake, or uh, well, you could say it in a few ways. The the the, the term you hear within a brewery is hire, um, but you also hear uh, teon saking. That's the, the two Japanese ways. Um, but yeah, we're talking about pasteurized sake. Right. So teon sakin, uh, it means low temperature sterilization. Uh, let's not say sterilization. Let's say disinfection, right? Because obviously it's not sterile if it's if it's just sort of brought to low temperatures. But yes, um, it's a topic that I think has more going on than it looks on at first, because most most of the time you'd look at it, it's like, all right, yeah, it's 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 heat treated, it's pasteurized, end of story. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, like all the topics that we tend to address on Sake Deep Dive, there's more to the story and we're going to get down to it, right? So um, just, I guess, starting off like basics, basic of most basic, Andy, what is so hire, like we just said there, hire is sake that has been pasteurized. So this is stuff that is not nama. Uh, you tend to get a very simplified version of why it's done. And that really kind of doesn't, it doesn't do the topic any justice at all. This is a very complicated subject and we could actually really talk about this all night. This is between you know, between the two of us, we planned this one quite well so that we didn't go go over. So we have quite a firm schedule for this one. <laughs> and without that, we, we probably really could start to go down um, several rabbit holes on this one. But, uh, you know, something that we're going to mention throughout, really, you can't talk about pasteurization without talking about its arch nemesis, uh, which is hiochi uh, or hiochikin. And th this is, for anyone that's learning Japanese, this is why kanji is very helpful for studying sake the kanji for hire you know pasteurization in japanese is literally to to put heat into so that is how the sake industry like you said sterilizes or um stabilizes 
their their product they don't use any chemicals whatsoever to achieve this unlike they do in wine for example in a, in a lot of the case what they do is they, they use heat treatment to to stabilize it and the main concern for sake brewers is what they call hiochi now the kanji for that is basically the, the heat has fallen off or it's it's failed would be another way to i don't know i've got a professional translator sat, <laughs> uh, next to me so you can you should be doing these ones not me but yeah it's it's the it's the kanji for to to fall or to fail and heat so you see those two kanji and it makes makes sense what one is trying to achieve and is to stop the other one but yeah that that is that is it the majority of sake it really is pasteurized although nama is really a a trend that has been continuing and growing in momentum for for quite a while now and you almost kind of think you know when you go in to buy sake now the the, the variety of nama sake is quite it's it's overwhelming i mean there's you go into to a, a well-stocked sake shop and a lot of them are in the fridge now for for that reason so i don't know what you you think about the you know we'll have to be careful we don't start talking too much about nama tonight but yeah i don't know what your thoughts are on the the nama explosion it, I, I find it interesting because obviously you know nama has always been something that people really prized and really enjoyed but in my just the way i've always understood it is the reason that people were really excited about nama was that it was something that was really limited in availability it was available you know only in the colder months and only you know when you had direct access to a sake brewery or or a very local distribution system because you know it, it was considered this really quite fragile thing that wouldn't stand up to too much you know logistics transportation uh, and obviously that is not the case anymore like they they are shipping nama all over the world uh, it, it's not the situation that it once was. And so I feel like, you know, the, the focus on Nama for sake has become a little bit overblown just because that, that essential rarity or that essential limited nature of it is no longer true. And so now it's just, you know, it's just the sake that it is. It's not, special because it's hard to get it's just namasake and um i think that kind of carried over value has i think changed opinions of hiide sake a little bit i think it's generally led to people looking down on it or thinking that it's just it's not as good because it's not nama which i don't know that i agree with <laughs> in in uh general terms but yeah, it's definitely a trend, um, and it's definitely something that people are really vocal about. I know uh, I've I've heard uh, Kuji Kosuke from Nambu Bijin uh, talk about you know how you know freshness and and namazake is the way to sell sake. <laughs> it's it's sort of the big point in comparing it to say you know beer or wine. So yeah, we've got this sort of, I guess, dichotomy. You've got the, the hiire sake and the namasake. And, and I think maybe taking a little bit closer look at what happens when we do this process or these processes, I think as we will come to find out, uh, will probably help settle things a little bit. So the, the fundamental concept for hiire sake is that by heating sake to 
60, 65 degrees is I think sort of the, the traditional target. A couple of things happen, right? As Andy mentioned, those hiochikin, that bacteria, it's a, it's a kind of lactobacteria that is highly resistant to alcohol, but not highly resistant to temperature. And if, uh, if they let it just run rampant in the sake, then it, it ruins the sake, makes it, gives it uh, hiochi is, is actually the term for what happens. And, and basically it's just a way of saying it's, it's spoiled. It's, it's full of sour lactic activity that you do not want. Right. So you, you get rid of the hiochikin and there's something else that happens that maybe I think a, a more technically experienced person like Andy could, could explain more. So what is the other thing that, that really happens when you heat treat or stabilize or pasteurize sake? Um, well, there's there's a number of things obviously happen when you, when you hear about stabilization. That That is obviously true. Yeah, the, the, the stabilization thing, when, when you heat sake to that to that level, if you're doing it in the vast majority of ways, and we're, we are going to talk about the different ways that you can do it, but it you, you don't get away with that without altering the sake, unfortunately. It does change it. It mellows it, for one thing. That That is an, an obvious thing. If you pick up a, a textbook, you know, any kind of basic textbook on sake brewing and look up the section on pasteurization, like you just said, they, they'll talk about um, hio chicken and about how it's resistant to alcohol and, uh, you know, you have to heat it up to get rid of it. But they'll also talk about deactivating enzymes. You know, these are enzymes that made the whole brewing process possible. These come mainly from the from the koji. And if you don't deactivate them, then the sake continues to transform. And the conventional wisdom up until well, still is really, is that that's going to make the sake really bad. So what you're doing is you're 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 basically cutting them off, and the the flavour is going to take a much more um, predictable aging process. It's still going to transform, obviously, but it's not going to transform in this. It's not going to go down the same path as if you were to leave a bottle of Nama. And pasture and and um, age that they're going to be completely different. So yeah. that that's why you're hearing things like you're prolonging you're prolonging um, shelf life. You know, people people still real. Let's be honest, people still put their sake in the fridge, don't they? Not not everyone, I guess, but most people still put their sake in the fridge. But the the common belief is that you have to have nama in the fridge, and you know. That's subjective. Nine times out of ten, that's probably going to be the right thing to do. But um, again, we have to really be careful. We don't start getting down talking about namajuku here. <laughs> but yeah, that that is effective what they're doing. But it, there there are a number of other advantages for brewers which probably never really get mentioned. You did mention sterilization, but it does kind of do that as well. It is one kind of final check. For example, if you if you bottle a sake, and or you could, or maybe it's just been been in a. You're about to put it into a tank. the The traditional way to do that is you pasteurize it before it goes into the tank, and then if you're going to age that for say six months or a year, which used to be the norm, then you have to then get that back out of the tank and you have to get it into bottles. And to do that, it's then got to go through back through pipes and you know through 
you know, all, all kind of different manner of machinery. There, it's still got a long journey. Then it's into bottles again, which you know, there's a there's a cleanliness is, issue with that. So what they would tend to do is do it a second time. So taking away the stylistic point as well, it is a kind of final check for the for the brewery to make sure that the product they're putting out there is in you know commercial condition for the consumer. Right. Yeah. And, and sort of uh, taking one one step back, um, when Andy's talking about sort of stopping the enzymatic uh, actions, right? So more very, very specifically, right? What's happening is that by heating it up to that temperature, you are basically turning off any remaining MLAs, proteas, and, and, and those sort of koji-produced enzymes. So if they were, if they remained active, right, they would continue to sort of interact with some of the re residual sugars and proteins and things that were still in that sake. Um, and that happens anyway, like Andy said, but um, you, you want to slow that down unless you're really interested in seeing how the sake sort of ages and changes and shifts. And this is one of the things that happens with, um, with hiire sake very, very, very slowly. All right, we're, we're getting back to that Maillard reaction and, and keeping things in the fridge slows it down, um, removing the active sort of chemical agents in the sake slows it all down, but it's still going to happen. And yeah. this is why, you know, aging sake is a thing that happens, right? It's, it's why it does something is because, you know, there's still action happening in the bottles. And, you know, by, by heat treating it, by pasteurizing it, you're also make you're just, you're just making that safer, right? Because the changes we want to happen are very, very limited. We don't want things like, you know, spoilage. Yeah. The, I'll, I'll sort of put my cards on the table early doors. I think I, I know why people are saying that you should pasteurize. And if you don't pasteurize, you have to put things in the fridge and what have you. But all, all I'll say is when when I first started brewing, obviously I I came in with with some knowledge of sake and you know I'd read things and read a couple of books and stuff like that. That was the first piece of information that I discarded when I first started brewing. This this sort of collective wisdom that if you you can't age namazaki, um, I, I I don't agree with that. I think that's that's a matter of taste. Me and you both love aged namazaki. When you there there are reasons historically why they would have definitely pasteurized sake for you know for shelf life for hiochikin. We'll actually talk about them later on, even going back as far as the why they used to do it in the the Edo period. But th things are different nowadays, you know reasons why cleanliness is of utmost importance in a brewery anytime you go into a brewery you know they're cleaning things or they're preparing to clean things or they've just cleaned things it really is important hiochi is is why there's such stringent um cleaning practices inside a brewery but they kind of they got on top of that in the meiji period that was when they kind of sussed that out we're, we're in a totally different you know era now so that that argument about pasteurization, you know, deactivating it and then the, the hiochikin, yeah, some of it still stands true. But the aging nama thing, I do still have a little bit of an issue with it. Yeah. If you're pasteurizing though, 
then what really, in my opinion, what you're going to get is you can make, you have the potential to take, to make two completely different styles of sake just by deciding whether to pasteurize one or whether to leave it nama. And then from that, you can then uh, fork off into, do you recommend, you know, as a, as a, as a brewery, as a company, do you recommend for your product, whether your customer drinks that sake fresh nama or whether they, they can age it. And the same would apply for pasteurized sake. Do you recommend that they drink it now or do you, do you age it or do you just let them work it out? But it isn't that hard and fast that you have to say, this is why they do it and and this is and this will happen if it if it doesn't. I don't think we're in that age anymore. I, I would I would sort of give one caveat to that just because like I have personally met and know um, people at, at breweries where like um, there was a shift, right? Where they had an old sort of, I guess, you know, crusty Toji Sado Toji who just really wasn't into that much cleaning and they had lots of loss. Like they had infected sake and they had to, to get rid of a lot of it where, and then, you know, when they got a new brewer come in who was much more uh, conscientious about sanitation and cleaning and keeping everything spick and span and you know spending two hours a day before every uh, workday cleaning all of that went away the namasake was fine and, and, and you know before that happened they they couldn't sell namasake because it would go bad like guaranteed you know because just because it wasn't clean enough so yes overall as an industry you know the it, it's become much more um almost uh i would say obsessed with cleanliness <laughs> like i you know there there are now breweries that have the full-on you know you can't go into the, the brewing room without the blowers and you know, everybody washes their hands you know before and after every process and you know there's there's gloves and yeah it's it's a much 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 more sanitary process but i i don't know that it's it's been that way for that long yeah uh, it, so. it will differ i mean i i've never worked in a brewery I've never experienced um, hiochikin from from any of the sake that I made. It's it's never happened at all, all through the breweries that I've I've been at. But they were all um, and they still are very diligent with cleanliness. But really, when you talk about the cleanliness, though, it really you're you're talking about it holistically. It's it's from beginning to end. It's not just when you do that brewery visit and you yeah. go in and wash your hands before you go and visit the Muro or the Motoba or something. It's, it's really everything. It's, you know, it's the hoses, it's the, you know, it's the pipes, yeah, it's the tanks that do the bottling. It's the, the small parts in the bottling machine. And, you know, the, these are all the things where Hiyoti can, can live. And if you don't clean them thoroughly, then, then you're going to have a problem. And I guess you're going to have to pasteurize everything because you're going to have to kill that um, kill that bad bacteria. Um, but like I said, the, the all three of the breweries I've worked with, they've all um, actually only only two of them have had namazake on their uh, in their portfolios, and they've had quite a lot of it. To be fair, I'll probably say about half and half almost. And there's never I've never experienced a, a problem with it. But of course, it is a real issue if you don't. Um, if you don't keep a clean brewery yeah it's just a a fundamental process and you know the the reasoning behind it is essentially one 
of a shelf life. But I, I think also just stylistically, it has become the norm, right? Once once you have pasteurized a sake, once you've run it through this process, it becomes something a little bit different. Like Andy said, it mellows out. It, it becomes um, a little bit more rounded, uh, much less brash, you know, and I, I don't know how many of our listeners have had the opportunity of having like just straight out of the Yabuta sake, but it can be super harsh. Like it's just really, really full of all kinds of uh, volatile flavor esters that, that really kind of punch you in the mouth. It can be uh, quite aggressive and pasteurization helps take a lot of that away you know, heating it up to get those, uh, th those additional volatiles to, uh, to, you know, dance off and in, into the atmosphere is, is a really good thing to tame some of that, uh, shibori tate wildness, right? Yeah. It's a different drink. It really yeah. is. I mean, obviously I'm a brewer, so countless times of, you know, part of the job, you have to drink the nama as it comes out of the press to make sure no one's, you know, made a colossal boo-boo somewhere along the process. You have to check that it tastes okay. And, yeah, it does. The novelty, be, being perfectly honest, the novelty wears off pretty quickly. I, again, we're, this is all going to be, you know, depending on the individual, but I'm not a fan of that type of sake. It's nice, and it's a nice thing to do when you're working and, you know, first thing in the morning and you get that press and it's, okay, job, job done. And it, it is very zippy and, you know, as you said, it's it's very brash. But it, it's not what I would want to then go home and pour a big glass of it and sit drinking on it all night. I, I'm definitely, my own preference is for the more mellowed, rounded flavours that have had a little bit of chance just to, you know, catch up with themselves and, you know, and reveal themselves properly. Because you definitely don't, it, the sake has not revealed itself when it comes out of the press. There's a lot of brewers say that's when the journey begins, is once it's pressed. That's when the process begins of, of you know, turning it, um, fulfilling its full potential. All right. So, yeah, that's what Hide is in, in a, I wouldn't even call that a nutshell. <laughs> We've done a pretty decent job of getting into it let's 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 step back for a minute though because there are some things about this process that are quite uh interesting just in sort of the cultural aspects yeah some of the history um i think people who have studied sake at all will know that the history of hiire in japan goes back a long time and uh it, it probably goes back longer than people even think right yeah this is you know a, a topic of contention as well actually we can <laughs> we can get into this as well but yeah if you if you want to tell us uh tell us a bit about the history of it and um, when it was discovered and uh, I've, I've certainly found a few interesting tidbits as well so right yeah so when we find records of uh i guess let's let's call it just sort of low temperature uh pasteurization instead of you know heat a or stuff because you know there's the terminology gets a little bit mixed up so we, we find the first references to heating sake to improve shelf life um a really long time ago it, it goes back to the the tamoniki it's in the i think in the 1500s um you know when you know sake was still uh prior to becoming a major industrial product 
but on its way there, um, the, the, the monks who were brewing sake at the time, you know, these were the records of, of what they were doing and it's in there, right? There, there are descriptions of using heat to, I guess, uh, clean and purify the sake, right? Now, um, a lot of people talk about this in, in regards to sort of the European discovery. You know, Louis Pasteur is credited with uh, discovering the fact that heat kills bacteria and this uh, sort of improves the shelf life of consumable products. And um, basically, the Japanese records predate that by a good 300 years. And so this is, you know, the big thing, like, oh, the Japanese people were um, uh, were doing this long before the Europeans were. Uh, but it wasn't just the Japanese people, apparently, right? Uh, Andy's got, what was that? What was the, 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 the thing that you were, you were well, quoting to me? Yeah, well, this, this is interesting, and it is a little contentious, like like you said, you know, Louis Pasteur discovers this, allegedly discovers this in what nineteenth century, and then there's the records from the Tamoi Niki, which the I I found a few sources that said fifteen sixty eight. The Tamoi Niki started well before that and finished well after that, so maybe that was when it was that was the date stamp of when that particular entry was logged because it is a diary effectively. That puts it 300 years before Louis Pasteur. And then people make this leap that that must mean that it's Japanese. It's it's the work of the Japanese then to discover this. And to, to, to say otherwise can sometimes be quite contentious. So I'd rather quote a very respected Saki historian uh, who we've mentioned uh, a few times on this, which is uh, Mr. Horie Sensei. So this is a quotation from his book. Um, it says, Saki no kanetsu zakin hoho wa muromachi jidai ni nizake toshite chugoku kara haitte kitta gijutsu desu. Shitagatte hirei wa nihon de hatsumei sarete mono dewa arimasen. So you can maybe translate All that, right. but it's pretty clear. Yeah. So um, again, so he, this is Horie Shuji. He was a, a professor and instructor at, uh, I think it was the Shimane Agricultural Sake Brewing Association, sort of, I don't know. He, he, he taught sake brewers. And uh, yeah, so basically he says in his book, Nihonshu no eto seizo gijutsu the technology of producing sake, that um, the practice of heating sake to kill bacteria came to Japan during the Muromachi period with something called nizake from China. Uh, nizake, it literally is just like heated sake. And so that would indicate that it was not something discovered in Japan, right? So he's he's basically just saying that it's, uh, it's a Chinese uh, development, which is not at all shocking. Um, I think, you know, technologically speaking, uh, medieval China was the most advanced society in the world. Yeah, I think a lot of the processes that, that came into making sake in those early days did come from China. So, it's, I mean, just thinking about it reasonably, it's not all that surprising at all. Yeah, I mean, let's not open the trap door on that one, though, because it's worth pointing out to, to our listeners that there is quite a lot of debate goes on about 
you know, whether sake is actually, you know, a Chinese thing. There's the debate about the, the correct usage of the kanji for koji, which is, you know, that's a, a topic of uh, contention as well. So we'll, we'll leave that one for another yes. night. Nothing like the argument over kanji. Yeah. Right. At any rate, it is a very old process and it is something uh, that people have been doing if, during their sake brewing for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, well, very importantly, he also hits on, you know, the argument that it is a Japanese thing is that I think he talks about the Japanese sensibility for appreciating sake warm. Yeah, I think he mentions something along those lines later, later on in the book. And there is some interesting historical facts about um, why they, they did pasteurization. If you go a little bit further forward into the Edo period, considered the um, authoritative textbook from the Edo period actually came at the beginning of the Edo or relatively soon into the early into the Edo period about 16 they're not sure but about 1680 they think and that is the Domo Shuzoki and um, that literally translates as like what brewing for dummies <laughs> the exactly. idiot's guide to brewing sure yeah, the, the, the idiot's guide to, to, to brewing yeah and there's actually de there's a lot of detail about how they pasteurize and why they pasteurize. And the, the why they pasteurize is much more interesting. So they, they talk about in three stages and three um, desired outcomes from those three stages. So the first one is a uh, usubi, which is like thinly heated. That's the kanji for, for that. And of course, you have to remember this is before thermometers were um, were in existence. They were, they were not used in brewing until the, the Meiji period, I think. So the way that you would do this pasteurization is they would obviously have the, the pot, which would be, I guess, a, you, know, a, you know, some sort of metal pot that they would heat the sake in. And the only way that you could do it is they talk about putting your hand in the pot and swirling it three times near the brim. And if you don't feel the heat, then you put your hand towards the bottom. And if it gets hot towards the bottom, then that's the same temperature as sake that you would drink in the summer. So there's another thing we can park for another episode about the historic drinking practices of kanzake. This is in the Edo period. They would have heated sake in the summer. But the reason they did it to that level was that they, they, wanted, they wanted to improve the shelf life. So that was the point in doing it to that you know, that lightly heated level. The next level up is a tebikikan. And this time, again, if you put your hand in the pot as if it were a stone and swirl it three times, if you have to quickly pull your hand out, that's obviously the point where you're getting scalded, then that's a good temperature for shipping to Edo. Specifically said it's Edo, so that's when it would have been sent on ships, you know, for, for marketing uh, with the, the merchants in Edo. And then the final one is atsubi. This is very hot. And thankfully, it doesn't mention putting your hand in here. It just says that if you can hear the boiling, then that's a good temperature to improve the shelf life of sake that would otherwise go bad very quickly. So it's, it, you know, even back then in the Edo period, they've got different outcomes that they're trying to achieve from, or different goals that they're trying to achieve from pasteurization. So even then, it was a hugely important thing. 
And luckily, uh, technological advances mean that uh, Andy doesn't have to stick his hand in a pot of almost boiling sake anymore. Yeah, that that is one thing that I'm grateful for. I have to say, but I just I thought that was brilliant to see. Yeah, that, that is <laughs> that well, it, is how they got around that. Like it, they, they literally, you know, flirted with injury. I wonder if they had like a guy around who just like didn't feel pain. And every time he put his hand in, like they were just like, nope, nothing yet. And they just kept until it started boiling. Or the uh, the opposite, I guess, a guy who, who like as soon as he touched, he's like, whoa, that's way too hot. And then it ended up going bad because they didn't get it hot enough to, to clean it. Yeah, I think um, your, your, uh, your shelf life is a, you know, in that position would only be a couple of years, I think, because your hand would be would have no feeling left if that was your job. Maybe they gave it to, you know, the apprentices or something. I don't know. You're in your first or second year and after they were they were, you know, useless in that role and they got promoted anyway. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So yes, obviously now um uh, we have advanced beyond that. Um I think maybe that's a good good time to talk about like the 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 actual physical methods that are used now in uh in heating sake to get rid of the the enzymes in the king, right yeah well you, sh- you shouldn't be surprised to hear that there's a lot of different ways that you can do this that is really sake brewing in a nutshell isn't it <laughs> um i i was lucky this year because i ticked a few boxes that you know in my in my brewing career that i hadn't done to this point and one of them was tank pasteurization so if you start with the, the most, I guess, the most large scale method, which is tank pasteurization. In the past, they would have used what they call a jacan. It's uh, the, the way to translate that is a snake tube or a snake coil. I'm sure some of our listeners have probably seen these. If you ever go to these older breweries, they tend not to throw away the equipment. Some of this stuff is actually very hard to throw away, particularly in Japan. Maybe they keep them around. But if you look around the back of breweries, you sometimes see these big it's like a big steel coil, and that is a, a very rudimentary um, heat exchanger. That was what they, they, what they used to use. You don't really see them very much, again, apart from being you know, thrown outside at the back of the brewery. But it's, it's a very um, quick, actually it's a very quick effective way to do pasteurization. The, the sake would get moved between different tanks and what you would do is you would start them off in one tank. In the in the middle, you would have another tank with one of these jacan heat exchangers in it. And then in a third tank, that would be the tank that you're going to send the sake into. And the sake gets moved from one tank through this coil heat exchanger. It actually goes through the through the the tube and um, the steel pipe. And the water on the outside is you know is the one that's been heated. And then the two exchange heat into the sake and then it gets put into another tank so nowadays they've pretty much largely replaced jacan with um, plate heaters these these are um, hire sakinki they're called and this is a a super efficient way of doing what the jacan was doing the the real benefit um, there's a number of benefits but the biggest one is it saves a lot of power because it's much more efficient these little very thin um, plates that the, the sake kind of gets passed through and it very quickly, it, it can, you know, literally absorb the heat that's getting put into these, into these plates. 
And that was the type of pasteurization that obviously, you know, the, the bigger companies are going to mostly do. Can I ask a quick question there? So um, yeah. these plates, are they put into the tanks or is this another thing where the sake is flowing from one tank to another and it goes through this machine that has yeah, no, the plates? No, that, that, that's another difference with, you know, Jackan and these plate heat exchangers. One of the reasons why they're much more efficient. It's a standalone piece of equipment. So that I won't go through the whole rigging because it's it's actually really complicated. You use you use actually three tanks, even when you've got the plate exchangers, because you you have to make sure that the the sake has got a constant flow and what have you. But yeah, effectively you're you're taking this the sake from one big tank or maybe two tanks into one bigger tank. It gets fed into these plate exchangers, the, the heat exchangers, and then it gets pumped out. So it's pumped in, and then you have to pump it out into another holding tank. So the problem with that, and this is going to be our lead-in, by the way, to the, to the next part of this um, conversation, the inevitable part, which is talking about you know trends and what have you. But it does present one... You could say it was a disadvantage if you, depending on what side of the fence you sit, when you put it into this tank, the, the, a lot of the conventional wisdom nowadays is that you need to get that sake cooled down as quickly as possible. And the reason that um, that is apparently the case is because at that temperature, at, if you think of drinking Atsukan or Tobikirikan, it's completely transformed the taste of the sake. That's why you heat it up. You know, people talk about the, the vast transformation. Well, it does the same with hire and how long and what temperature you've heated it to has a, a, an effect on the, the transformation that the sake undergoes. So if you've got it in this big tank, that is a, a, a real issue because you can't easily cool a tank down so what you would normally see is they kind of wrap these like coil showers at the top of the tank. And then as soon as the tank's full, as soon as it's finished, um, you pumped all the sake in and it's gone through the plate, plate exchanger, you then basically turn the tap on and all you get is cold water kind of water cascading down the side of the tank. And the tanks can take a day, you know, sometimes if it's in, you know, the height of winter, you know, you'll maybe get lucky and it'll take half a day, but it can take a day, sometimes longer for the temperature to actually drop back down to, to room temperature, whatever that may be. So nowadays, the, the conventional wisdom is you need to get that, you, you want to lock in the freshness of the sake. So they talk about a more efficient way, which is a much more um, time-consuming and labor-consuming way, which is really always the case in sake brewing. And that is what I'd done mostly for uh, the first two breweries that I worked in. In fact, one of the breweries was 100% this method, which is bottle pasteurization. Uh, this is what they call binkan, or more specifically with ginjoshu, binkan kure, which is um, bottle pasteurization, rapid cooling. And the advantage to the bottle is that you can cool it down quicker because it's just a small bottle. The largest size you're going to have is what Tobin, that's going to be very rare. Isho bean or Yongo bean or even better, the smaller 300 mil or 500 mil bottles. 
And what they do is, using the same principle as showering that tank, is you, you literally shower them. So at the second brewery I was at, they'd rigged up this kind of um, this setup where you, you put a, a case of sake down, it was after it was heated, so you reached the temperature, and then it got showered for about 25 minutes, and that was the way you rapidly cooled it, which 25 minutes compared to a day, you know, incomparable in terms of, uh, you know, you're not, you're not allowing the sake to, to alter in, uh, in flavor. So, so that's the, I guess, the conventional wisdom and the way that you're going to see done by um, ginjo brewers or, or brewers that are certainly using highly aromatic yeasts for, for one thing. They're, they're going to tend to use the bottle pasteurization method, whereas the, it, admittedly, the, the stuff like um, futsushu or jumai or honjozo, the stuff with less aromatics typically, maybe a bit more robust, is going to probably get done by tank pasteurization. Thank you very much. Uh, I have actually, there's one thing that, that I want to add to that. And uh, I, I tend to, to like to leave sort of the, the technical stuff to Andy because of obviously his experience, but there's something new that I have stumbled upon and, and I, I kind of wanted to share it and maybe, maybe get Andy's uh, input on it. There's something called dual heating that is now appearing in sake breweries. Well, yeah. I did, yeah. I did study this Jim, but yeah, um, I, I came across a very interesting article uh, from some guy that calls himself Yamaguchi Sake. Uh-huh. Uh, he's he's always on his soapbox, and uh, he 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 really had a problem with this <laughs> this what? technology. So there, there's a very interesting blog that I'd recommend our our listeners read to. So yes, take it away, Jim. No, well, so again, so, so the thing is, is like Andy just said, um, you know, a lot of breweries have started uh, bottle pasteurization because you know it traps in a lot of those aromatics and stuff, and and I think. Um, one of the sort of the targets of more modern heat and pasteurization attempts is to sort of preserve as much of the state of the sake as they can when it comes out of the press, um, right? It's that whole idea of the fresher is better. And this new thing that's called uh, jewel heating is, I think, maybe the, the the latest shot in that war, because what happens is this, I researched quite a, a lot of different resources and I found sort of in 2005, there was this academic paper sort of exploring, you know, can we use this scientific technique in sake pasteurization? And their opinion was yes. And then like from 2016, 2018, I started to see actual breweries talking about using it. And the process is basically this, um, sort of like you get with uh, the heat exchange plates, what you've got is you've got a tank of sake, they pump it out into a sort of dedicated device. And as it flows through this device, the first thing that happens is that uh, it goes through a heat exchange that is uh, heated by sake that has been through the process, right? So what happens is this, it goes through the heat exchange and into a chamber where electricity is sort of shot through the sake, which instantaneously, like within a matter of seconds, raises the temperature to the target of, uh, in this case, they say 60 degrees. Um, 60 to 80 if if you want, but I think most people don't don't want it to go that high. And then 
And then it is immediately pumped out. It goes through that heat exchange, right? So it's already adding its own heat to the incoming socket. And then it's run through two more heat exchanges of cold water. And what, and basically the way they describe the process is it is um, absolutely 100% effective in all of the things that you want it to do of, you know, uh, killing heotikine and uh, deactivating the enzymes, uh, just like all of the other methods. But um, it's so fast that it doesn't have any of those other sort of alterations, right? So it does the same sort of preservation that you get in, in bottle pasteurization, uh, but even better. Um, I, there's this really sort of funny little uh, thing uh, of, from a company that's selling it, this thing's like, you know, if you, if Namazaki is 100% of the aromatics you want, uh, jewel heated sake is 98% and uh, bottle pasteurized sake is 95%. Like it, I don't know how exactly uh, they're measuring that, but basically what they're saying is, you know, it's as fresh as you can get for a, a an actual hiire sake. Um, it's very little contact with air and, and the speed of it means that it doesn't, you know, have that uh, transformation effect. And so what you get is hiire sake that tastes like shibori tate, um, which isn't what you always want. But anyway, that's beside the point. So I'm curious though, Andy, like, have you, like in, in sort of apart from some crazy guy ranting on the internet, how, like, have you encountered anything about this? Like even any talk about it uh, sort of professionally? I have no idea how widespread it is at all. I just do know that there are some sake berries, um, particularly the large ones. There's one in Hiroshima that, that uses it. Yeah, I think this is, it's really inevitable. And I'm not saying I blame the export market, but it's quite clearly the result of the export market and the, the, the increasing um, sales uh, going, you know, go, going abroad, increasing amounts of sake that are going abroad. You know, for for people like us that live in Japan, it's not really a novelty anymore. You know, we can go and buy you know, delicious namazaki in the convenience store any, any time we like. doesn't matter if it's, you know, the middle of summer or winter when these kind of sakes are, you know, are trending. We can buy namazaki in a vast variety of styles and, you know, brands anytime we like. Whereas historically, this has always been a problem for the export market, you know, and th these problems are real, you know, sake turns up and it's, not how the brewer intended and it's not been shipped properly or you know i i, I can only, i only hear these stories i've not i've not experienced living abroad as a sake consumer um I, i've always you know consumed my sake in in japan and that you know these kind of systems are one way of getting around that they kind of they give you the nama experience but they're not namazaki so they've got the stabilized factor you know in them having said that i do agree with your blog i i totally agree 100 percent with what you said in your blog that doesn't mean that that's what you always want and there does seem to be a shift towards this and i kind of worry a little bit about it of assuming that that's what everyone wants just because it's fixed the problem for the export market if if I opened, like you said in your blog, if I opened a bottle of sake that was not, that didn't say namazaki on the label, 
and it was fizzing and you know there was bubbles and you know it was all green aromatics and what have you i'd be quite upset as well because i thought i'd bought a bottle of kire sake that is that's going to taste like um that it's been pasteurized if i wanted to buy a bottle of namazake there would have been countless other choices that i could have picked up it wouldn't have been wow i've managed to get a bottle of namazake so if that is the way the industry is going to go i think they need to start being a little bit more transparent with what is inside the bottle and that that's that's a bit of a shame really that that's that's where it's getting to that you have to you know really detail things on labels because you shouldn't always have to do that there should be a bit of brand awareness and you know and what have you but if you have to start writing on the label this is pasteurized but it tastes like nama yeah i think we're um we're, we're starting to get into kind of you know shaky territory it is a difficult thing just to sort of think about how to address because obviously you know labels are not super useful guides in all kinds of ways but at a at a sort of a, a fundamental level like it's just a it's it's a so new it's such a new experience that it's hard to to grasp how to deal with it right um and some brands like uh tembi i think is very much like everything they make is is that like it's just really fresh and, and bright um and and i guess that's fine because that's all they've ever been right they're still a new sake brewery they haven't had like there's no hiaroshi from tembi like they just don't do it it's just not a thing they do but for other breweries that are sort of changing and and introducing this new idea just as a way of of hopping on to the trends that someone like tembi is or tembi is part of um, it I think it's going to be alienating to some people and maybe they don't care. Maybe, maybe that's fine to, to, to sort of alienate the, the older drinkers. So I don't know what I like. I, I don't know what an answer would be. They'd have yeah. to find a, a fun name for it. <laughs> like fresh, yeah. fresh sake. Yeah. Fresh. Yeah. It would be something stupid like that. Yeah, it is an ideal though. I mean, I think you should be able to to buy with confidence, and it's creeping in, isn't it? This this idea that fresh is better, and I, I don't believe that. I think you're going to alienate, like you just said. I think you're going to alienate a lot of customers. I mean, if you went to buy Kazenomori, and you picked, you took your bottle of Kazenomori home and you opened it up, and it was really like Jukseishu you're going to be really disappointed because Kaze Nomori is all about being fresh Nama. You know, it's, I think it's a hundred percent Nama unless they export it. And I think the only, you know, they, that's the only time they actually pasteurize the Kaze Nomori brand, but they have another brand within their lineup, which is uh, pasteurized. So, so you know what you're getting. That's, that's clear. That's good. That's a good way to set up your shop, isn't it? If you want fresh stuff, then you buy the Kaze Nomori. If you don't, then you buy the, you know the other brand the local stuff but if you start getting you know everyone chasing this nama 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 and that actually starts affecting their current products then i think that could be uh, that could be quite disruptive for uh, for consumers and the sake industry so i don't i wouldn't welcome that i don't think nama is the ultimate taste i don't hear that very often from brewers to be fair but there are some that 
that, that that's clearly how they feel and that's fine but they need to be clear about that um, in their in their branding so when you say that maybe you know there are some brewers that feel that way who do you have in mind well some people just like you know some people have set up their shop that namazaki is the type of sake they want to make and that's absolutely fine like i said kazinomori is you know it was founded on that principle the brand started on the idea of young fresh you know zippy style of sake that's why they made them all namazaki so if you're going to you know if you're a kazinomori fan then that's fine then you you know you obviously like namazaki but you know and that they're not the only people there are some other brands out there that i can think of one in hiroshima that their their sake tends to you know regardless it has that kind of effervescence about it even even sometimes bizarrely when they're aged i don't know how they do that but you know i've opened sake that's been you know it's not namazake that i know you probably had the similar experience and you can kind of if you if you know that is the case then that is absolutely fine but when you start opening things that don't really warn you of that um that have possibly been something else in the past i think that's it's probably not very good for uh, you know, in terms of labeling, I think it's probably not a very good thing to do. Uh, I think I think it should be clearer. Absolutely agreed. You know, I think it just is is one of these things where you know somehow the idea that Hiede is damaging to sake has taken root, and I and I don't know why. Like I don't know what what we can do to to argue with that because it's it's obviously just it's it's just the thing that happens and, and it's been part of of what we've come to know and love about sake and i mean it's not even that it, nama is the problem it's i think that that idea that freshness trumps all uh, and that uh, somehow hide is anti-freshness i don't know yeah yeah there definitely is something beginning though isn't it yeah you know the the idea that hide is some, somehow sort of damaging to sake or it reduces the quality of sake it's not something we really agree with but at the same time you know people have their taste and they do what they want and you know if 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 namazake is where it's at for you please enjoy your namazake i i just hope that we can uh, we can have room for both in our sake lives because uh, you know the more the merrier is basically all all i want to say uh, yeah I, I would just like to, to add to that and in, in complete agreement with you i keep saying this i'll, I'll say it over, over over and over again diversity is really the thing that that got me into sake that's just it really is such a diverse industry with different styles you know we should welcome um more variety you know, and, and, and keep it, keep it that way. Let's enjoy the fact that you can try Namazaki and you can try Hire. And for the brewer's perspective, just a simple process, although it isn't, as we've discussed, it's not, you know, hundred percent simple, but it's relatively simple when you consider the, the other processes that go into brewing. All you need to do is in some way, shape or form is heat it up to 65 to 70 degrees and you can not only have two completely different drinks at that point, but you can set them off into two completely different paths. And there's all the potential that comes from both of them. So for, for me right now in Japan, probably about right, there's there's plenty Nama and there's definitely plenty Hiri as well. So 
let's say, let's keep it um, more of the same, please, for me. Yeah. So I think it's probably recommendation time, Andy. And, uh, you know, like uh, many times we have uh, topics that just make it kind of hard to choose uh, a sake. But this time, I mean, gosh, every yeah, sake. 70% <laughs> of the sake is on the market. It's... <laughs> Right. So, um, in all in in all honesty, I'm just I'm just choosing the the last Hiide sake that I drink, which just happened to be a can of Dewazakura Ginjoshu, and it was delicious. It was lovely. It was tasty and um, shelf stable, and no threat of hiochikin at all. Um, and and did let me use a fancy plate heater thing that. Probably. Probably no, no, I don't think they did. It didn't taste nama at all. Uh, it, it gets extra points for being uh, uh, aruten, right? Not nice. not jumai, and uh, extra extra points for being in a single serving size. I love single serving sake, so there you go. Get yourself a can of dewazakura. How about you, Andy? Brilliant. Well, I, I'll confess as well. I, I've got about five or six empty bottles on my desk that I do the podcast from. Uh, and I just looked at them and thought that was the nicest. <laughs> it's, it's pasteurized. I drank it a while ago, actually. Um, but it's from uh, Aromasa. So, you know, we are talking sake royalty here. It's one of their uh, seasonal sakis. Um, they're, they're, they have a seasonal theme called Colors. And this one is Cosmos. Cosmos is a real, um, you know, that's a, it's a heavily marketed um, autumn flower that uh, you, you you see a lot in Japan. And there's a connection to sake brewing as well because they, they surround the rice fields just before harvest. Um, so it's it's a pink label. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's everything you would expect from a brewery with an impeccable reputation. It's Kimoto... Um, Kiyoke Jumai. Uh, it had a bit of aging before it reached my hands. Obviously, it's uh, Rokugo Kobo. It's quite low alcohol, which again is Aramasa esque. It's 13%, which is not something I would normally go for, but it, it's very, very good. And it was pasteurized. And I can tell you that this would have been pasteurized, and I can tell you confidently because I've been to the brewery, that this would have been pasteurized in bottle using hot water and then a shower to cool it down sounds like a winner to me i think our takeaway was done right yeah if you like nama drink nama if you like hire drink hire sounds good to me right so that wraps us up for another episode of sake deep dive i as always have been your host jim ryan uh, author of discovering yamaguchi sake uh, and translator of lots and lots of cool stuff if you're into mysteries, I got something for you. Uh, you can find me online at my website, www.jimryan.com, J-I-M-R-I-O-N. Um, and that's probably the uh, the best way to get hold of me these days. How about you, Andy? You can get me at my website, www.originsake.com. And now that I'm finished, finally finished brewing for the season, uh, I should be a little bit more um responsive certainly apologies to some people that i've not managed to get back to and things um yeah you can get me on there or you can get me on instagram 
All right. And uh, I'd just like to remind everybody that our Patreon is open. Uh, you can search for Sake Deep Dive on Patreon. We offer extended show notes for our patrons and uh, people at the upper Tokuri level get access to Sake Sipisodes, where Andy and I just kind of uh, uh, drink and, and ramble on for a bit. Uh, our latest one was uh, quite a fun one where we went on a little Sake train ride. So, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, feel free to support us. And to all of our supporters, we do thank you very much. We thank all of our listeners. Uh, we hope you're having a wonderful spring. Uh, keep your tokuri filled, but drink responsibly. Have a and great one. One last, one last thing, please. One last Sorry. Thing. Yeah. We will be, speaking of Patreons, we will be um, announcing, um, by the time this episode goes out, hopefully very shortly, we'll be announcing the dates for the Patreon-exclusive Sake Matsuri. Oh, that's right. It's coming up. It's our summer Sake Matsuri, our second ever. I can't believe that we, we, it's already time for that one. But yes, uh, we will be announcing that to our Patreon patrons soon. Thank you for reminding me. All right. And uh, I guess that's it. Uh, kanpai. Kanpai. <laughs>